You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Before diving into today's episode, we want to share a reminder that our Scaling Culture Masterclass is coming out in the next one to two weeks. This is the full cycle playbook on building and maintaining a high-performing culture that Ron wished he'd had 15 years ago. Check out the Scaling Culture Masterclass teaser and join the waiting list at scalingculture.org. Now, on to the show. Our guest today needs no introduction. At the mention of his former company, GE or General Electric, his name and leadership come instantly to mind. Many a business case have studied his leadership skills and the giant that is GE. We are so excited to share this episode with Jeff Immelt, ex-CEO and chairman of GE and the author of Hot Seat, a memoir of leadership in times of crisis. Jeff served as chairman and CEO of GE for 16 years, where he revamped the company's strategy, global footprint, workforce, and culture. Jeff has been named one of the world's best CEOs three times by Barron. During his tenure at as CEO, GE was named America's Most Admired Company by Fortune Magazine, and GE is recognized as one of the world's most respected companies in polls by Barron's and the Financial Times. Jeff has received 15 honorary degrees and numerous awards for business leadership, and he chaired the President's Council on Jobs and Competitiveness under the Obama administration. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and Jeff discuss key leadership attributes and tactics, three critical questions to check and balance future success. 30, 30, 30, 10. This is Jeff's time management strategy, tools and systems to navigate crisis, GE's simplification, and digital transformation. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett. And today I'm extremely excited and honored to have Jeff Immelt with us today. Jeff, welcome. Hey, thanks, Ron. Good to be with you. Uh, great to meet both you and Nick. Yeah, and look, I... Appreciate your time. I mean, I, I'm a big fan. I'm going to put that out there and, and uh, a big fan of, of not just you yourself, but, but your history and what you've done. And it's just, uh, you've had an amazing ride so far and doing some amazing things today. And so I just, uh, I was so, so thankful to have you on. And so th- thanks, Jeff, for taking the time to do this. No, happy to be here. I was intrigued by the theme of your podcast and I have a tremendous number of good friends who are business people in Canada, so it's great to uh, great to be with both of you. Well, that's right, because uh, and that re- reminds me, um, you said you had relationships of past with the Irving family. Yes, right? yeah, uh, that- they were big customers. We had a board member, Jeff Beatty, who was on our board for many years. Uh, Elise Allen, who ran Canada for us, is a well-known public figure there. So. Every hospital and energy company and, you know, airline, Air Canada, and all down the list, uh, all great relationships and customers. Yeah, I love that. And so I'm, I'm curious, I want to actually stay on that for a sec. What would the, because the, the look, the, the Irving culture, right? They're known for a no BS culture. There's a few things that I've, I've learned, and I, I don't know many of the Irvings, but no, you know, no BS, high performance, and, but you know, the, the, the key folks from the Irvings are just known to ask everybody a million questions. The leaders just, you know, if an Irving comes to you, they're going to ask you a million questions out of curiosity, making sure that the customer journey is right, looking for bottlenecks. What did you, did, did you find? Was there similarities in the GE culture and Irving culture? How did you, how, and what was your perspective of the Irving culture back then? It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I knew both the brothers and 
you know, and we were in similar industries, but in many ways, the Irving family is a, you know, kind of a family business, public-private business, uh, and that has its own dynamics. You, you know, I, I think our our way, not dissimilar to other companies, you know, I had the luxury of generations of managers to learn from and things like that. I think, you know, being entrepreneurs like the Irvings, they had to kind of learn a lot of it on their own in their own time, you know, kind of by having good people around them and by observing. So I always found it was a good kind of cross current between private industries, public companies. And I always had a real, I always had a real love for founders who scale, like uh, Fred Smith at FedEx. He's one of my heroes. You know, he was there from day one, you know, kind of eight planes to today. Uh, he still asks questions and is curious about new technology. So there's something really rare about founders that can scale themselves over generations. And what, what do you what do you think this the, the key is? Is it curiosity and not thinking, not getting to a level and thinking of the smartest person in the room? What's that key attribute that allows someone to continue to scale and stay out in front of a scaling business? I think the one attribute of every successful person I've ever met is curiosity. Right. Uh, from Warren Buffett to Jeff Bezos to Angela Merkel to Jamie Dimon, they all ask more questions than they answer. If, if you go see Warren Buffett to have dinner, you're wanting to learn from him. He asked the first 10 questions. Right. Uh, I used to you know, we did a fair amount of business in Europe and in Germany, and I would go see Chancellor Merkel, who just retired. She would ask the first 10 questions. Right. So. I just think curiosity is just one of these common success traits that whether you're a small company, big company, uh, conglomerate or individual business that travels well. And it's, it's interesting. I, I, and you know, I, I, at least I feel like I'm a curious person. So, so hopefully I'm in that, in that lane, but I find that, you know, as when I was a child, my mom was annoyed with me. Like, stop asking me questions. Like just, you're asking these stupid questions all the time. And so now I find that things have changed. One, I'm relentless about asking questions as we were discussing, but Google's been helpful. Like that, like the answers are at our fingertips too. Not the same type of information, but just quick, quick hits, you know? I think it's one of the things that's made podcasts so popular, which is, Look, you know, like The Economist is a great journal, right? But you're basically getting just one person's line of questions to cover a, a story versus, you know, subscribing to a half dozen podcasts. You get a whole generation approach to question asking. And I, and I think that's why uh, podcasts have become so popular and such a great way for people to learn. I agree. It's, it's interesting because you look at like a TED talk versus a podcast and the interactive conversation, I find it more interesting. You know, it is, it's like, Oh, good question. I wonder if you're going to ask this question. And, and so that back and forth and a deep dive into a, into a topic, I think has been 100%. helpful. Yeah. Uh, really, really a hundred percent, hundred percent agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And, and, you know, we were talking about it with our team, uh, a few weeks ago. And, and I, you know, I'm 42, but I feel like I'm a little old school. And I keep telling everybody, we need to read more books because these, the internet has caused these quick flashes of things, but the book gives you a deep dive. Like we've kind of moved away from books, you know, books are like getting old to some people. And I feel like it's time to lean back into a, a deep read and deep learning, you know? I think that's really true. I, I think, um, you know, again, 
I'm, what I'm about to say is going to, I'm going to sound like an old fossil, but, you know, social media does have a tendency to lean hard into quick reads. And the fact is, is that, you know, one of the things I, I write about a lot is that truth equals facts plus context. And unless you understand the context around the world and decisions you make, you know, you're never going to be um, as knowledgeable as you need to be. You, you know, I, I, I'll give you just a, a fact, right? So we're in the midst of climate change. The world has to do something about it. But, you know, if, if you replaced 50% uh, of the coal plants with natural gas uh, uh, power generation, you'd reduce the carbon footprint in the world of, by 17%, right? So if you just dismiss fossil fuels completely, if, you're, if, you're, if you believe in climate change like I do, uh, you miss some of the bigger points that have to do with how you actually solve the problem. And so I think while knowledge is more dispersed, problem solving has become rarer because people don't wanna take the time to really understand how to get shit done. Well, that's a great point because the other thing is because knowledge or, or the, the you know this information is so quick and it's this quick you know dopamine hit you know and people have the fear of missing out that you don't go deep into a topic you don't go to the whiteboard anymore and just say let me noodle around about this idea and jump and and dive deep and research deep I mean unless you're a researcher people just don't do that anymore it, I think you're spot on right particularly in the big problems of the world you, you know you you need you you want to give people here's a series of books to read if you want to understand globalization or immigration or climate change, because those things, if they could be solved by a soundbite, we would have solved them all already. You know, right. but it's just the way life is. Oh, no, agreed. And so I want to go back to GE. And it's funny that the timing is interesting because, um, you know, I'm now into a real estate business. I left private security in 2017, sold to Allied Universal out of California, and I've got a, an affordable um, community-based real estate company that's scaling across Canada and then into the U.S. called Vita. And I'm meeting so many people on the finance side that used to be a GE. And I didn't even know that GE did financing. And it was this huge, and it's like in Toronto, everyone's like, oh yeah, I was a GEO. We know each other from GE, you know? So, you know, spending 16 years, I think it was 16 years at GE, right? Well, I, spent, like that? I spent 35 years at GE, but I was, I was 16 as the CEO. Right. Yeah, no, Sorry. No, 16 no. is CEO. So I yes. want to ask you. So, so if you go back in time, you know, the, uh, let's say in the 1970s and eighties, um, uh, you know, kind of the management of the company saw that if you could, if you could take cash flow from industrial businesses, you could lever it eight to one, we could build a very successful financing business, which started around our own assets, but grew and grew and grew and grew. And, and we did mainly commercial finance. We had a great real estate business, but we did, you know, leasing and, and uh, a little bit of consumer finance and things like that. And uh, in Canada, I think we would have been considered maybe the sixth biggest bank. We, we had a very big footprint, very successful footprint. And, and I'm not surprised that you meet a ton, of, uh, a ton of people as you go through it. And that all was great until the financial crisis. Right. And, and if you hopefully you were too young, but if you lived during the financial crisis, uh, you know, we had exactly the wrong business model at exactly the wrong time. And we were too big. Right. So it really recast the company in an important way. And so what happened was we, we ended up exiting 
almost all of the financial service businesses. Wow. So we had great people, they, we were great teams, but we were we were debt funded. We were what's called wholesale funded versus banks that are deposit funded. And when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt and all the bondholders got wiped out, you know, it made debt funding really, it, it just was something you couldn't do anymore, right? So that's, right. but you know, look, I would say just in general, not just in financial services, right? You know, we had a great, our business in Canada was very strong across the board, right? We were big market share at Air Canada. We had a big healthcare share. We did a ton of business in the energy sector in Calgary. And we we had probably four or $5 billion of revenue in Canada. Wow. And so I'm curious about your position as CEO. So if you look back from a leadership perspective, Jeff, what what leader were you when you entered and then when you exited? What were the key changes or learnings, you know, yeah, through that it, journey? It's a great question because I was, you know, I was young. And you still are. You still are. I'm, okay. <laughs> but I, I hadn't seen, you know, when I became CEO, I had never seen a terrorist event. So I, I had never seen, I, I'd been through business cycles, but I had never seen something that was completely unplanned. And, and unexpected, and then 9-11 happened, and then the financial crisis happened, and then Fukushima, then COVID, and things like that. And so we kind of live in a world of, of crisis. And so I would say I became a much better crisis manager as time went on, and learned how to be a better risk manager, learned how to do a better job kind of navigating through uh, volatility and things like that. I'd say that's that's one thing I learned, right? Second thing you, you never see until you become CEO is you don't understand context, right? I knew how to run a business and I knew how to measure people and all those things. But I think what you find when you're CEO is that it's not just about you or your company. You have to understand how you fit with the world. Now that was, you know, again, it, I would say 2001 was actually pretty easy. Today for a CEO, you have to worry about, or you have to be, cognizant of politics and social justice and governance and the environment and all kinds of things. So that that started as a very, I'd say, very nascent phase and is now pretty uh, predominant phase. So I'd say I became a better crisis manager. I understood more about context. I learned, you know, how much, you know, I, I tell people when I teach, like, your success path really follows three arcs, if you will. One is how fast you can learn. And I was a good learner. Some days I learned more than others, but I, I tried to learn every day. And, and uh, just on that note, Jeff, on that first one, because you must have been in the weeds in the vortex. So was your learning just through talking to people? Were you carving off an hour to, you know, to read? What were we doing? You know, so I, I had the luxury of, let's say, being able to read anything or, or, or get the best experts on any topic that money could buy. But I also could see for myself, you know, so for instance, in 20 years, 25 years, I became a real hands-on expert in China. But that was something when I started my career, I, I didn't even, couldn't even think about China, right? I, I didn't even, you know, I had no awareness that it was going to become such an important part of the future, right? So I, I could I could see things for myself. I could get the best expertise, and it was up to me uh, to learn that. So, so that's so, so to me that sounds like 
I knew nothing about the business culture. Now I know the players, the culture. I know all kinds of, you know, who to transact with, who to trust, how the economics what work works, over there. What works, what doesn't work, how to hire people, how to hire teams, you know. So uh, by the time I retired, we had 21,000 employees in China, primarily a local management team. We had, you know, probably $10 billion plus of revenue, $6 billion of sourcing. We did $5 billion of financing, you know, so all kinds of things that you never uh, knew anything about or, or could expect, right? Right, right. Second, the second arc is how, how can you give to others? How many, you know, in other words, how, how, how connected are you with the people you work with? Are you making them better leaders? Are you helping them in their careers? Do you have a connection? Uh, are they loyal to the cause? You know, what kind of, um, what kind of relationships are you building? And, and, and I would say, you know, I never really wanted people to be uh, loyal to me per se. I wanted people to be loyal to their own ideas, committed to their own teams, committed to to see the things they wanted to do, to see them reality. And and uh, you know that I think is the second arc is how many how many people, how many relationships do you collect over over a career? And I think that's that's kind of the second arc. Let, let's say and and and. Um, you know, I did. I, I I had great relationships for uh, among thousands of people, but I trusted a few people I shouldn't have. You know, so human relationships aren't perfect, and you make mistakes uh, in human relationships. And and um, you know, when you look back, you love the people you love, but you kick yourself in the ass of the people that broke your heart. You know, and why you let that happen. But that's that's the second arc. And then I think the third arc is how much pain can you take, right? And most people quit not because they're not smart enough or not because they're not capable enough. Most people stop in their careers because they just don't want the pain, right? They don't want to the work pain, the extra pain, hour. The stress, okay, yeah, yeah, keep going. Stress, they don't want to work the extra hour. They don't want the stress of uh, fear of failure. They don't want to be judged harshly by others. And so, you know, I, when I, I teach a, a second year business school class, the last day of class, I always say, look, all you guys are smart enough. You, you men and women are smart enough to be CEO of Goldman Sachs or an entrepreneur or a COG, anything you want to be. But you got to answer three questions, right? How fast can you learn? How much will you give to others? And how much pain can you take? And you're going to answer those three questions, right? And if you keep going on all three, you're going to you're going to go a long way, right? Well, it was interesting because as you were going through one and two, I was curious, roughly back of a napkin, how much time did you spend learning and connect on connections? And connections to me is so I, it's a great question. It's a great question. So I, I basically spent, let's say, thirty percent of my time connecting with people, right? I probably spent thirty uh, percent of my time on growth. That's probably learning, right? I spent 30% of my time solving problems. That's probably pain. And I spent 10% of my time on governance with boards or the government or things like that. So 30, 30, 30, 10. So I basically spent my time on those three things more or less uh, for a long time. But if you think about this, if you think about these as a stack, right? And so the learning and connections help ease that 30% pain, right? Because you learn more, you can solve more problems, better connect with better problem solvers, et cetera. Was it helpful? Like, wouldn't that make- For sure. 
hundred percent, right? You, you know, and, and having a good family life and things like that. But you know, I, I see in my students and people your age. You're, you're you said you're in your early forties. Most of my students are let's say thirty. They're children of crisis, right? Um, you know, when I get a, I got out of business school in 1982, we were trying. You know, our our world was great. You know, the world was at peace. America was the most dominant country in the world. Our life was peachy, right? These kids, they're more, they're just more, more concerned. They don't trust. I don't blame them. They don't trust the older generation, right? So you're, you're a little bit, you know, there's, there's some things in your life you can choose. And there's some things in your life you have to react to. And, and uh, you have to learn how to navigate, how not when you're in a moment when the world is just against you, not to blame people but to use that as an opportunity to test your leadership, to see who good, you know, I didn't cause the financial crisis, but man, did it hurt, man, was it awful. Right. And so it was a test to see uh, how fast you could learn, how you could adjust, who was with you, who was against you, those kind of things. Yeah. Who showed up, right? Who showed up. Right. It's interesting. I was with a friend of mine the other day and she had a, uh, her car broken into and her comment, really made me reflect. And her comment was, cause you're used to, oh shit, you know, someone broke into my car. And what she said was, yeah, I, you know, my car got broken into and I really feel bad for whoever was in a position to do that. And I was just like, I'm just, I'm just an asshole. Like I just, I, I need to think more like that. You know, that takes, you know, a, special, that takes a special person. It does. <laughs> and I thought I need to work harder on that. I think the world needs more of this type of compassion like no one thinks like that you know it's uh, I, I thought it was interesting what i would echo with your friend is that there's there's no way to describe how much you appreciate the phone call you get when you screw up right the the person that reaches out to you the person that you know none of your listeners are going to have a perfect life or perfect career and, and those, those small gestures on your worst day, you remember to the day you die. You remember who did them, who made the call. And, and similarly, the person that kind of kicks you in the ass when you're down, you remember that also. But I, I think it's good that people always try to be the one that actually makes life easier for somebody when they're in, a, when they're in the wrong part of the cycle. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, as you were saying that, I could already think of people that just didn't ask for anything in return and just got out in front of, you know, something that I was fussed about that said, hey, let me, let me help you with that. You know, it just, it's such a nice feeling, you know? Uh, for me, it was, it was uh, John Chambers and uh, CEO of Cisco and Ken Chenault, CEO of American Express. Whenever, you know, I felt like I was in a low spot, they were the kind of friends that, reached out. And similarly, you know, I had people that I would reach out to when I felt life wasn't being fair to people that I knew. Yeah. And I, look, I, I wrote something down. I want to go back to one, the bucket two on the, because you said something that, that stuck out and I was curious. I had a question. You said, I want people to be loyal. One of the key things that I did in that 30% bucket, I wanted to be people to be loyal to their own ideas. My question is, how do you check and balance that with, okay, Ron, that's a great idea, but we just, that's off brand. It's off, it's off strategy. How did you check and balance someone who wanted to be loyal to their own idea to make sure that that was connecting 
to the vision of the company and the strategy and, yeah. and not their own ego? No, really a fair question. And, and you know, I, again, I think that's always a, you know, you always have a back and forth, particularly in a big company, because you're not going to do everything all the time. You're not going to fund all the ideas. You're not going to go with all the ideas. But it's more like once you've decided, right, once you've decided that this is where we're going to go, you want leaders that basically stand up and say, okay, even in the tough cycle, we're going to get this done. You know, probably the best run business when I was at GE was our aviation business. And one of the things that made them successful is they made really clear strategic calls. And then, you know, after 9-11 or during the financial crisis or when bad things happened, they just kept going. They, they, they just didn't waver, never wavered. And they never looked for excuses and they never... They, they never kind of shifted blame or anything like that. They just, and that's, you know, look, that's what you see in Jeff Bezos, right? That's what you see in Elon Musk. You know, look, um, you know, Tesla's an amazing success now, but when he started Tesla, like, like uh, electric vehicles was a shit show, right? It was, you know, there was Absolutely. no Nobody wanted one. They were failures, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think you ask a great question because you're not going to do everything all the time. You're not going to make people happy all the time. But you want people that basically, you know, kind of have the debate and then execute, right? And then are committed to seeing their vision through. Right. Yeah, I love that. And so during... And maybe this dates back before CEO, but with your time at G, was there a major cultural transformation? And if so, what was it? Was there like, wow, we needed to change with the times. And so here's how we started to think differently culturally, or, you know, was there any major transformation? There was a couple, I think there was a couple that kind of went through, you know, kind of, let's say when I was growing in the company, the and I'm going to speak more kind of as a leadership concept, right? Um, the real focus was on what I would call professional general management. So I, I came through a school of uh, process leadership, accountability, metrics, instrumentation, good human resource management. And Jeff, would that would that be labeled, and, and I, maybe I'm wrong here, would that be labeled more the traditional or or command and control style yeah, or not? It was kind of okay. a wealth, and it was, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I'd i say okay. I was kind of, and, and basically the stuff Jack did at GE, that was pretty much adopted throughout, um, you know, corporate America, even global uh, uh, corporate ethos and things like that. And I think uh, that was kind of the school that I grew up in, right? Right. And I think if you look at the school of the last 20 years, some of which we tried to do, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not successfully, is a more technology and innovation-driven era, right? This is very much deep, technical, innovative business model. And it, it's not that professional management is unimportant or that the things you learned before are unimportant, but I think the cultural transformation we live in today is one that's very much dominated by innovative business models and technology. Right. right. With a little bit of with a little bit of globalization mixed in. And, and so I would say 
What we try to do is really drive more technology, more market focus, more globalization. But you know, the people that can do digital transformation at scale have turned up to be the big winners of this generation. And by that, I mean, you know, you go down the list, Apple yeah. and Microsoft and Amazon. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, because G being global, how many employees when you're at the helm, plus or minus, are we looking at? I'd say three, about 330,000 people. Oh my. Oh my dear, that's that's more people than we have in Canada. No, it's not. But probably <laughs> make it. That's actually as much as we have in Halifax, where I am in this city. That's 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 equal to Halifax, basically. Yeah. Um. So, but but I'm curious because I, I read an interesting book. It must have been almost two years now, and I don't know if you uh, have read or or knew the book Nine Lies About Work. Ashley Goodall, Marcus Buckingham. Do you know that book? No, I don't. I'll, I'll send you a copy. Very yeah, interesting. It challenge. Yeah, it challenges the things that we thought um that we anchored on and so one of the things that it challenges was people care about what company they work for and at first i'm like whoa whoa yes they do and it says no they don't what happens is they want to work for apple and then they get there if they don't like the team and the leadership it's death by a thousand cuts it doesn't matter what the brand is and i was like okay makes sense and and then one of the ones that i was curious about uh and the approach to ge is they said look the traditional best plan wins is a lie and what they said is because typically what happens is, you know, the yearly strategic global planning session, you know, here's the initiatives. We push them out, push them out, push them out. By the time they get to the front lines or those who need to actually push them out, it's like whispering around a circle. It, the passion's lost. The details are wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They said, that's a lie. It's not best plan wins. It's who else, who, and maybe this touches on your digital transformation, who can push information out the fastest? And so how I took that, and I, and, and I, I actually uh, thought deeply about that. And my thought was, yeah, it is about, I think what, what they're saying, well, what they are saying is, if you come out with um, you know, your strategic planning session and say, well, we need to move the needle on this thing. So in my business today, you know, our water consumption, our buildings are too high. I would shoot a video and push that to our frontline leaders right away and ask for their help. Maybe give some guidance, but give them the autonomy to buy into their own plan. Thoughts on that? And, and did that happen at you? How did you push that? I think it's, uh, you know, again, it's, it's one of the things that makes business so fascinating, which is if you're, in the, if you're in the jet engine business, right, which was kind of the, you know, many of the businesses I was in, you know, these are, these are kind of scale-based, high risk. Uh, it takes thousands of engineers to get it right. You know, and you've got to you got to work with airframers and airlines and countries and all that other stuff. You know, it's just not set up for experiment, vast experimentation, right? And so, I think the trick is finding the right pace and culture across a variety of different businesses. And I think it's one of the things that legacy companies, you know, in other words. Hey, aviation, but you don't have to run every business like aviation. And I think it's where legacy companies tend to make a mistake is that they, they gear everything around the riskiest business they're in and don't allow for a multitude of cultures to take place inside uh, their company or their structure. And that's, you know, look, I would use an example. Boeing is a great company, right? They, they are uh, making planes is really hard. Why is Boeing not in this? You know, why is SpaceX dominating you know, space travel? That should be Boeing's, right? right? But 
if they throw it into the same superstructure that has dominated commercial aircraft, you know, they have no, they have no prayer, no choice, no hope. So the trick I think in the coming years for legacy companies and even some of the, you know, Amazon's becoming a legacy company is being able to run multiple structures underneath the same roof. Either, either multiple capital market structures or business structures or business models underneath the same roof or else you're just going to get beat. And the key there, and, and not, by the way, I'm asking this as a question, is really strong leaders at, on all those business entities, right? Exactly. Because empowering, right. Empowering, strong, empowering strong leaders to the front line, helping them where you can help them. And there's, there's lots of places... Uh, let's say a superstructure can help people. You know, we could take any business to China because we were a big company in China, right? That's something small companies can't do, but empowering frontline people and you need hundreds of them. You, you can't, you know, we had maybe uh, 15 really dedicated PL leaders. We should have had 150, right? That's, that's how you get the right level of speed and empowerment. Well, you said superstructure. Was that just a, what, what were you referring to? You know, like a, like a corporate structure. You know, in other okay. words, if you think about what, what do you think about GE or even like an Amazon or, you know, there right. are certain things you can do at scale, which are more efficient than any small business could ever do. It's, but, but not a lot. So the trick is picking which one of those things actually can be done beneficially, but then empowering people to do the rest completely. Well, it's, it's interesting because I I, uh, I learned a lot, or I feel I did on on the word empowerment. Um, and the you know our the book I wrote in 2018 was outrageous empowerment. And one of the key you know the, the subheading was you know the incredible story of giving employees their brains back. And really, this came down to autonomy, because in the private security business, it was command and control. Hey, Jeff, we pay you twelve dollars an hour. Unfortunately, you do what we want when we want. You check the policy book outside of what you don't know from the day-to-day basis. And I just hated that. And one of the things that we came up with was how do you give people their brains back in this environment? And I was really looking to push out autonomy. And I found very quickly that that was, that was tough because, you know, when you start off as an entrepreneur, maybe leader, sometimes you say, okay, you know, Hey, I want you to act like I make the decision like I would, but that's not fair. We're not the same. We're not wired the same. We have different risk tolerances, education, et cetera, et cetera. Well, make a decision like a business owner. Also, not that's not reasonable. You know, they're not a business owner, and so I was really trying to think of how do we create a framework. And so what we did is said, look, Jeff, if you're a frontline leader, and you come across something that you haven't been trained on, that you it's a new thing that you need to make a decision on, that you would call your manager for typically. Oh, I've got this thing. Then ask yourself three quick questions to make to guide yourself to have the autonomy to make a decision. Those three quick questions were one is what you think you're about to do or the decision you want to make, is it the right thing for the customer? Number two, is it the right thing for our purpose and our values? Does it align with our purpose and values or mission? And three, are you willing to be accountable? If it's yes, 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 don't ask anybody, move. And we'll support you on your decision. And we found that was very helpful. The GE, because I, I always, you know, and I argued with HR managers at the time, said, Ron, that's just too flexible and you, the business won't make it and we need more policy. And I said, no, we'll have less. And I want, you know, because I think the question becomes, how do you simplify things as you scale? Not how do you add bureaucracy? Because that's the natural, like, oh, it's time to put your big 
you know, big court pants on and, and build more, you know, policies and procedures. And so that worked for us. What did G, what was the strategy to get yeah, those I, folks? I think, I think you just said it, you know, probably in 2000. So we had come through the financial crisis. And anytime you go through a crisis, the tendency is to add more checkers, right? It, it's not just, what's it just a G, it's everywhere, the government, everybody else. And so in 2012, we launched a, an initiative called Simplification. And it was really about, uh, you know, kind of reducing the amount of layers of, of review, empowering people to do more themselves, kind of taking out what we call the stateless stakeholder, the person who can opine on something but isn't accountable for anything, and just started kind of plucking out things, and then we would measure engagement, right? So I think whether you're a small company or big company, having metrics that kind of show, hey, I'm empowered to do the work that I'm supposed to do, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, I think the, the thing for us, Ron, again, we, we would make things that fly you at 30,000 feet above sea level. That's one area. But if you're like, uh, if you're in the ultrasound business in healthcare, you're launching one new product in each segment every year. You move, you're moving at a quick pace, an innovative pace, and we had everything in between. And our task was to make the speed kind of match the market. You, you know, so basically who's the fastest in this market? We have to be at least that fast, right? Who's the best in this world? We have to be at least that fast. And you know, by and large, particularly on the equipment side, that works. And then, you know, as, as we tried to do you know, kind of the digital transformation. We were kind of ahead of the time. You know, we were really ahead of, ahead of the curve, finding ways to blend that culture into a legacy culture. That really is hard. I have to say that really, that right. really is, uh, that really is hard. I've, lots, I've had lots of conversations. I'm on the board of Twilio with a great founder. And he and I have talked about like, Lessons, you know, now that I have a decade to think back on, you know, some of the things, what I, what I would have done differently. And there's definitely things I would have done differently in that that's, that's hard. Well, I, you know, I was curious in, in, in a role like yours, two, two parts to this, Jeff, how did you stay? Cause you would have had to be incredibly focused, right? Incredibly focused, lots coming at you. And I think that's always been an Achilles heel for me. But the second thing is, and a, a good friend of mine, Justin Skelly, who's a manager um, at um, Bank of uh, Montreal here, he talked about this concept of as, as a leader, his job to ensure that his, his, his team that he supports can be focused is he acts as the umbrella to, shed, to, to, to really you know, get rid of the noise. I, I feel like I'm guilty sometimes of no umbrella and I'm, I'm kind of pushing all these ideas down all the time. What are your thoughts? How do you, how, to, how did you, you stay focused? You got to say, so like I have, I would have a thousand ideas in my head all the time, all the time, but only one would come out of my mouth. So I, I think a good leader is always thinking, they're always considering, they're always learning. The switch is always on, but they leave a lot of thoughts unsaid. And, and um, you have no idea how many times I'm in a coaching session with a leader, I would just say, look, you're too, you're in a position in your life where you can't think out loud anymore, right? That's not, I know you think it's being transparent. 
It's just being, just being a distraction to yourself and everybody else. You can't do that, right? You got to you got to no. have put a focus because you get people confused. And every time I had to fire somebody, and I would go in with the team, I would bring the new leader in, and I would sit with the team. I I, I would look at an org chart, and I would ask people how they're measured. And I would hold the two up and it was always a friggin' mess, right? You know, because it wasn't that the person was stupid or that the people on the table were stupid. They were all pretty good. They're all very good, in fact, most times. It was just that they couldn't focus on the right things. They they were doing things out of sequence. And so it's just this, this um, we live in a world of ideas and having good ideas is really important. But executing on, on ideas takes a certain amount of focus and good leaders know when people are ready for the next idea. That's really interesting. And I mean, the key headline, one of the kind of an aha moment for me was you're in a position where you can't think out loud anymore. I yeah. think, I think that as you said that I'm like, wow, I think out loud too much <laughs> because you're right. I mean, you know, I think that the message is, is, is you have no idea or I have no idea how someone's taking that message. It's my brain is just going, you know, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'm just thinking harmlessly about something, right? Exactly. That's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, so look, let's talk about what is it? What is, where's leadership going with the pandemic? What, what do you think are the attributes that need to stay and ones that need to be left behind? Like speaking yeah. out loud. <laughs> thinking out loud. I think the importance of technology is, I know it sounds obvious, but it is, you know, again, when I, if I was in 2001, the year I became CEO, if I, if I gave a talk in front of GE people about this, it's going to, this is going to sound horrible. You know, this company has to be defined by technology. People would have said, I don't know what she, what he's talking about, really, you know? We're good managers. We can make anything better. As long as we, as long as we make anything better, we're going to be okay. Blah 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 blah. No, sorry. Uh, if you're, if you, no matter what industry you're in, from media to packaging, every place else, if you're not aware of what technology is coming through Silicon Valley or India or things like that, you're going to get, you're going to get hammered, right? So, importance of technology. I think the notion of commitment. Now, I wouldn't even talk. People talk purpose. I really talk commitment. You know, in other words, young people today, it goes back to the book you were telling me about. They don't want to work for uncommitted people. They want to work for committed people. Now, they don't have to save the world or people talk about all that stuff. I'll leave that to others. They smell uh, fear. You know, young, the people I teach, my students, and one of the reasons why so many want to start their own, so many want to start their own business is because they don't trust people to stay committed, right? So commitment, I think, is key. That's interesting. I think capital markets, like there's so much money out there that you can basically fund almost anything, anywhere, anytime. That wasn't true 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but it's true today. So, so as a leader, knowing how to get money is kind of a new trait. And then I'd say the last thing is, you know, we're never going to come out of COVID the same way we went in knowing how to manage distributed workforces and people you don't see or people you may never see, right? That's a real skill set that is still being developed. I think things like communication and 
accountability and all that stuff. That's always going to be important for leaders. But I think if we sit here right now in 2021 and say, what are the, th you know, it's technology, it's capital markets, it's commitment, it's future of work. Those are the things that really, you know, being able to harness those, being able to manage those, that's going to be what you got to have as a skill set going forward. And Jeff, I'm curious on the, you know, when you're lecturing at Stanford, I'm, I'm assuming part of the, um, part of the content is about crisis management. You talked a lot about really, that was a new skill that you had to learn. Yeah. What is the, what's the key? Is it just staying the course? What are some of the key learnings from, you know, from yes, what folks I, that are listening I, to this? What crisis is, it's, it's kind of um, showing up, right? So it's this notion of even when you don't want to, you have to be there. You have to make decisions knowing that you're going to be criticized. Right, so so weathering criticism, it is a, a constant flow of communication, even when I don't know is what you're saying. And the last one is it's the ability to hold two truths at the same time, right? That things can always get worse, but you know if you believe in your company, you you have to still make bets uh, in the future. And this is what I see, you know, this holding of two truths. Is what I've seen more, you know, like not having enough capacity in anything and like chips and things like that. That says that when we went into COVID, people only held one truth. <laughs> things right. are really terrible. Anybody who had two truths, whether you had a box company or a chip company, whatever, you're coining money right now, hand, hand over fist. So I think that's uh, that's how you think about crisis. And I talk about it, but you know, uh, all right. So in other words, think about your next book. The students I have, they don't want, like, here are the seven rules of leadership. They want to know, like, shit happens, here's what I do. So they like stories. They, they love stories. They love stories that worked, of things that worked, and of things that didn't work. And, you know, I teach from mid-March to the end of April, and we'll have a couple CEOs come in who do town halls. I, we have a CEO in every class, but the whole campus will have famous people in and I'll ask my students, you know, did you like this person? And, and, you know, frequently they come back and say, no, you know, cause he's worth $10 billion, but you know, he makes it seem too easy or, or we don't want billionaires lecturing us about the evils of capitalism or stuff like that. So I think being, being around them is quite healthy for your ego because they put you in your place. Right. They don't care. They want to hear the stories. Let it, let us know where you rolled up your sleeves, fell on your face in the early days, I guess. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Um, look, one last thing um, that I was curious about too, is when you talked about, you know, back to crisis management, we had a, we had a podcast guest on a few weeks ago and they said, you know, with the world shifting and you have anything from George Floyd, black lives matter, you know, challenges now uh, as of late with, you know, um, with the Asian community being attacked in, in, in parts of the world, the, 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 the counsel from this guest said, you know, be cautious of if you're a leader of a company of what you're going to take a position on. And what his point was, not that we shouldn't, but his point was that people will then watch you for what you've done after that. So you can't just go, he, he was saying, don't just go on and say, we, as a company, do not support that. Well, what are you doing internally? Because your people will watch and say, well, what, what did we do to change as a company to double down? Thoughts on that? 
Yeah, look, I think that's good advice. I, I tell people, first and foremost, lead by example, right? You, you know, I, I spent half the year in Silicon Valley. You know, the fact that Silicon Valley has a lousy track record on uh, sex and race discrimination, so they have to keep their mouth shut. You, you know, in other words, they may talk, but nobody listens because they're just not credible, you know? So lead by example. Um, the, the advice that your guest gave, which is, if you're gonna do it once, you gotta do it all the time. So you can't protest Georgia's voting rights and not protest Texas voting rights, right? And, and, and therefore, and, and I would say, um, the last thing is understand the power of a singular voice. Um, you know, look, I, I knew from previous life, real estate days actually, I knew President Trump, right? So uh, when I knew him long ago, not, and so he became president and he pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accord. And I personally went on record to say, I thought it was a bad idea. And he called me, right? He called me and said, hey, you know, you're being an asshole, you know, you're wrong, blah, blah, blah. He says, but at least you're not one of those guys that signs a petition. You're willing to put your own face out there and I'll always respect that. Click, right? So right. if you're the person that's the 300th signature on a petition, nobody cares. But if you're willing to stand apart personally and, and allow yourself to be go out there personally, then you have a thousand times more credibility. Love it. Jeff, anything we have talked about, and I've loved this conversation, anything that we haven't talked about that that is kind of hot off the press that you think the, the listeners would like to hear about? Gosh, I think um, I think maybe you know, Ron, maybe a question on digital transformation that I yeah can, yeah um, yeah to, yeah I know you're passionate about that. That yeah. is hot off the press for you. So tell us more. You know, when when yeah, you talk digital transformation, it's an interesting thing on any change of any kind, which is uh, knowing what to do and how to do it is actually the easiest thing on earth. But knowing when to do something is actually really hard, you know, having good timing. And when I started digital transformation at GE, it was just too early. It was just, I was just too early. And Jeff, sorry, when, so back then, what did that mean? Was it so, you know, a website? So, what did, you know, what a, a big part of how we made money and, and how we serviced clients was on uh, making the installed base of jet engines or MR scanners or locomotives work better. And so in about 2010, working better meant harnessing data, taking data off the equipment and figuring out ways to model preventive maintenance and things like that. But we were first to that. There was no companies doing it. So we basically did it ourselves, right? And we did it for a long time and Gartner rated us highly and stuff like that. But we kind of just, I would say we ran out of investor permission to do it. Right. And we didn't find other ways to help pay for it and things like that. But when I retired, I wanted to kind of see how all this was going to end. So that's one of the reasons why I became a venture capitalist instead of going into private equity and things like that. And so when I when I'm in California, I probably have a legacy company visit me every week who are oil and gas companies or airlines or things like that. And I kind of I, I go through, look, you got to pick the technologies that really matter, 
Okay, so there's a lot of technology. You got to pick which ones matter to you. You got to go through a real make versus buy analysis. In my case, we decided to make it. We should have bought it. We, we should have slowed down and found somebody to buy it from. Going back to your point, you got to figure out how to get it disseminated in your organization, right? I, I'd say many companies have it all, all go through the CIO. That's a real mistake. You, you've got to get the technology into the hands of the operators in the organization. So that's the third point. And then the fourth point, you have to really understand the future of work. Like, like how is this going to make people's lives better and things like that. So I go through, and this is, you know, COVID has certainly accelerated all this, but this is probably, if you're a CEO of any company, a bank or airline or anybody else in 2021, you know, digital transformation is number one on your list. You know, you just have to know where this technology is going to go. So big deal. It's interesting. And and there's a big part of change management on that, but uh, there was a speaker at a conference a few years ago. And one thing that hit home for me on, I think is part of the digital transformation process, which I certainly missed, which was, look, if you're going to push out new technology, it doesn't matter if it's a new app, new system. We take for granted, or I certainly have the training that's involved with that. It's just go. And you just assume it's like your three-year-old that knows how to use YouTube all of a sudden. I th- have you seen that? Have you seen like, wow, we are just yeah, moving so I mean, fast. I and I think it's under really getting into the use case and showing it how it changes people's lives. That's where companies fail, right? That that that's where startups fail, and that's what's really critical. You know, it's one thing if you're selling to all thirty-year-olds, right? Because they all know everything about how to do it. But if you're if you're selling a uh, uh, kind of a process robotic to HR leaders, you've got to have people that can sit and explain to them, here's how the technology works, you know. And if you can't, you're you're not you're going to get replaced by pen and a paper, and yeah. that's the Jeff, uh, I just want to thank you again. This has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for giving your time and and stopping in. Thanks for everything. I hope we make perfect. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Jeff. For more information about Jeff, please connect with him on LinkedIn. For more information about our podcast or to join the Scaling Culture Masterclass waiting list, please go to scalingculture.org. And if you're enjoying the Scaling Culture podcast, please subscribe and share. We'll be back soon with another incredible guest.